You don't need to know all the twists of the story to appreciate the final pages, but a crucial one, so to speak, is that of Lord Dunstable's ankle as he fell down the stairs in the night. You also need to know that at Lady Constance's insistence, he wrote a letter proposing marriage to Vanessa Polk under the mistaken impression that she was rich. Now, Lord Emsworth's delightful brother Galahad Threpwood has come to visit him in the garden suite. His intentions may be charitable, a visit to the unfortunate patient, but he also has a difficulty on his mind. His godson and the Duke's niece are in love, but she is the irascible Duke's ward in court, which means that he must give his consent to their marriage. And the Duke has not given the green light yet. Lying on his sofa, watching the shadows flit across the lawn outside, the Duke was in what practically amounted to a sunny mood. Serene is perhaps the word one is groping for. He was feeling serene. But when some human substance appeared in the French windows and he saw that it was Galahad, his benevolence noticeably waned. He had never been fond of this companion of his early days, and his stare was the cold stare of a man anxious to know to what he is indebted for the honour of this visit. I thought I'd look in, said Galley. Huh? To ask after your ankle. Uh. How is it? Bad. Oh, good. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. What does the doctor say? Any sign of gangrene? That's what you want to watch out for, gangrene. Do you remember a fellow in the old days called Pusselswaite? He was bitten in the leg by a Siamese cat, got gangrene, and near as a toucher passed beyond the veil. You'll probably argue that you've not been bitten in the leg by a Siamese cat, and that that's of course a good point, but even so you can't feel safe. Funny bursting sensation, high temperature, floating spots before the eyes. Ah, good heavens, said Gary. I ought not to be talking to you like this. Great thing when visiting the afflicted is to present a cheerful front, to be all hearty, jolly. Make them forget their troubles. I should be cheering you up with something funny. What? Ha! Huh. Oh, of course, the poke wench. That'll amuse you. Turns out she's an imposter. Odd thing about Blanding's Castle. Seems to attract imposters as catnip does cats. They make a beeline for the place. When two or three imposters are gathered together, it's only a question of time before they're saying, let's all go round to Blanding's, and along they come. It shakes one. I've sometimes asked myself if Connie is really Connie. How can we be certain that she's not an international spy cunningly made up as Connie? The only one of the local fauna I really feel sure about is Beach. He seems to be genuine. R returning to the case of the poke wench, all through this long harangue, the Duke had been struggling to speak, but had failed to do so, partly because he lacked the special gifts which a man had to have if he hoped to interrupt Galley, but principally owing to a restriction of his vocal cords, which seemed to have seized up, preventing speech. He now contrived to utter. His words came out in a hoarse whisper, but they emerged. What's that? he said. What's that? he said. What's that? Are you telling me Vanessa Polk is not Vanessa Polk? Well, yes and no. What the devil do you mean, yes and no? It's a bit intricate, but I think I can explain. She's Vanessa Polk, all right, but not as she gave us to understand the daughter of the plutocrat, J.B. Polk. 
She is the offspring and issue of P.P. Polk, one of the Norfolk Polks. Polk is a good Norfolk name, so they tell me. He was a valet. What? Gentleman's personal gentleman. Her mother used to be a parlourmaid here. The Popsy herself is a secretary. Makes you laugh, doesn't it, to think of Connie, of all people, being taken in. It'll be a lesson to her not to be so fussy about impostors sponsored by others. The Duke was not laughing. The sound that had escaped him had been more like a death rattle. His jaw had dropped, and his eyes were threatening to part from their sockets. Threpwood? Yeah? I... Uh, uh, yes, uh, Threpwood. I have written that woman a letter proposing marriage. Uh, so Connie told me, and I was thrilled. It's a real Cinderella story. The humble little secretary marrying the great duke, said Galley. He had been about to say the pop-eyed duke, but thought it more tactful to substitute the other adjective. You'll never regret it, Dunstable. You'll be getting a prize, one of the nicest girls I ever met. You couldn't have a better prop for your declining years. The Duke snorted emotionally. You don't think I'm going to marry her now, do you? Oh, aren't you? Of course I'm not. How about her suing you for breach of promise? She mustn't get that letter. Ring for Beach. Why? He may not have started yet. With the letter? Yes. But Beach hasn't got it. I have. Clarence was concerned about asking Beach to go hiking with the sun's ultraviolet rays so sultry, so I said I'd take it. I have it here. The Duke expelled a deep breath. His lower jaw resumed its place, and his eyes returned to their sockets. Ah, thank heaven. You might have told me before, he added with a venomous glance, I was half out of my mind. Oh, I know. It was great fun, wasn't it? Give it to me. Oh, certainly, my dear fellow. It is what I came here to do. But before the handing over ceremony, I shall have to make one or two simple conditions. Clarence tells me you are planning to bring an action against him for having such slippery stairs. And that must be dropped. Oh, of course, of course, of course. To hell with Emsworth and his stairs. Give me the letter. Oh, just... One more article of agreement, if that's the right expression. You must also jettison these fanciful objections you have to my godson marrying your niece. What? Galley was all sympathy and understanding. His voice was very gentle. Oh, I know just how you feel. Every time your ankle gives you a twinge, you think hard thoughts of him, and I'm not surprised, but there it is, nothing to be done about it. You must bite the bullet, because if you don't, this letter goes to Lapoke registered. A silence of the kind usually described as pregnant fell on the garden suite. It might have been broken by the Duke calling Galley a low blackmailer, and he had every inclination to do so. But even as his lips started to frame the words, prudence told him that they were better left unsaid. The thought of that breach of promise case restrained him. He knew all about breach of promise cases. He had had one himself in his youth. 
They read your letters out in court and everybody there laughed his or her fat head off and it all came out in the papers next morning. To yield was bitter, but rather than have to sit and listen while a blasted barrister intoned that bit about the church steeple and the cloud, oh, he swallowed several times and eventually was able to speak. When he did so, it was in a peevish vein. What the devil does he want to marry her for, anyway? Oh, love, Dunstable, love. She hasn't got a penny. Oh, that doesn't weigh with these vintage Lochinvars. Has he any money? Not quite enough. I mean, they won't expect me to support him. Oh, good Lord, no. He's doing well at the bar, and he has an interest in that gallery where you bought the picture. It's a very prosperous concern. Mugs coming in all the time with their checkbooks and fountain pens. You need have no anxiety about Johnny's finances. So it's a deal? I suppose so. If a criticism could be made of the Duke's vocal delivery as he said these three words, it would be that it lacked geniality and enthusiasm. It fell somewhat short of the snarl of a timber wolf which has hurt its shinbone on a passing rock. But it was not enthusiastic and genial. Galley, however, found no fault in it. Good, he said. Excellent. Capital. Then all that remains is to complete the formalities by putting it in writing. Can you hop to that desk? I suppose so. Then hop, said Galley. Chapter 14 Another summer day was drawing to a close, and dusk had fallen once more on Blanding's castle. The Empress had turned in. Chauffeur Vules was playing his harmonica. The stable cat was having a quick wash and brush up before starting on his night out. And in the kitchen, Mrs. Willoughby, the cook, was putting the final touches on the well-jammed roly-poly pudding which Beach would soon be taking to the library where Galley and Lord Emsworth were enjoying their dinner of good, plain English fare. Now that they were alone, Lord Emsworth had said, it was cosier there than in the vast salon where the meal had been served during the reign of Lady Constance, who was now on the ocean, with only a few hours to go before her reunion with James Schoonmaker. Through the open window, the scent of stocks and tobacco plant floated in, competing with the aroma of the leg of lamb, the boiled potatoes and the spinach with which dinner had begun. Beach brought in the roly-poly pudding and withdrew, and Lord Emsworth heaved a contented sigh. In Lady Constance's time it would have made his stiff shirt front go pop, but now it merely stirred the bosom of his shooting coat with the holes in the elbows. His toes wriggled sensuously inside his bedroom slippers. This is very pleasant, Galahad, he said, and Galley endorsed the sentiment. I was thinking the same thing, Clarence. No Connie, no Dunstable. Peace, perfect peace with loved ones far away, as one might say. Sorry I'm leaving. You must, I suppose. I doubt if the marriage would be legal without me. Someone you know being married? My godson. I've never met him, have I? Oh, certainly you have. He is the chap who falls downstairs. Oh, yes. And who is he marrying? Linda Gilpin. Who is Linda Gilpin? 
She is the girl who kisses him after he's fallen downstairs. I am to be Johnny's best man. And who? Uh, yes, I see I'm confusing you, Clarence. Johnny and my godson are one and the same. All straight now? Yeah, perfectly, perfectly. Now, your godson, Johnny, is marrying Linda Gilpin. You put it in a nutshell. And I have to be there when the firing squad assembles. Furthermore, Trout and Vanessa Poe insist on me in dining with them before they go off on their honeymoon. Who, who is Trout? The chap who has married Vanessa Polk. And who, who is Van Vanessa Polk? The girl who has married Trout. They've both married each other and they're going for the honeymoon to Nassau. That's where the falls are, isn't it? People go over them in barrels, which is a thing I don't suppose many young couples would care to do. But no doubt Mr. and Mrs. Trout will find some other way of passing the time. Vanessa Polk, did you say? Well, wasn't she staying here? That's right, and so was Trout. Thought the names were familiar. Nice girl. Very sound on pigs. I hope she will be very happy. I'm sure she will. And I hope your godson will be very happy. Oh, have no uneasiness about that. He loves his Popsy. I thought you said her name was Linda. Popsy is the generic term. By the way, did Connie confide in you much while she was here? Not very much. Then you probably don't know that serious obstacles had to be surmounted before the Johnny Linda Gilpin merger could be put through. It was touch and go for quite a time. Snags arose, tricky corners had to be rounded. It was only at long last that they were given the green light. But all that's over now. It makes me feel as if I was sitting in at the end of a play, one of those charming, delicate things the French do so well. You know, the sort of thing I mean, lightly sentimental, the smile following the tear. I'm having my dinner. The storm is over. There is sunlight in my heart. I have a glass of wine and sit thinking of what has passed. And now we want something to bring down the curtain. A toast is indicated. Let us drink to the Pelican Club, under whose gentle tuition I learnt to keep cool, stiffen the upper lip, and always think a shade quicker than the next man. To the Pelican Club, said Galley, raising his glass. To the Pelican Club, said Lord Emsworth, raising his. What is the Pelican Club, Galahad? Oh, God bless you, Clarence, said Galley. Have some more roly-poly pudding. <laughs>